0: Hello and welcome to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Saccolariatus, the host of the channel. For today's show, we are pleased to have Dr. James Shires. Dr. Shires is an assistant professor at the Institute of Security and Global Affairs at the University of Leiden, an associate fellow at the Hague Program for Cyber Norms, and a fellow with the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. He's here with us today to talk about his new book, The Politics of Cybersecurity in the Middle East, Dr. Shires, welcome to the show. Hi, John. It's great to be here. To start, I want to follow the model of an intelligence briefer and begin with the bottom line up front. So what's the central argument of the book?
1: So the central argument of the book uh, is that cybersecurity in the Middle East is a complex and ambiguous topic. It's seized on by various actors in the region, states, and non-state actors, companies and other organizations to uh, advance their own interests. They manipulate cybersecurity, they redefine cybersecurity towards their own ends to try and get ahead of the game in politics in the Middle East. So cybersecurity is kind of like this um, football that's seized upon by many different actors is redefined for their purposes. And in the book, I trace different ways in which this happens and the broader consequences of doing so. This leads to information controls, it leads to increased targeted surveillance um, by repressive regimes, and it also leads to ideas of cybersecurity as cyber conflict, interstate uh, antagonism between highly uh, rivalrous and very um, escalatory situations between different Middle East states uh, involving cyber attacks and cyber conflict.
0: You do a brilliant job articulating something in this book, which those following the field, I think, understand intuitively, but may lack a vocabulary to describe. And that stems from the outsized role that experts in power, be it financial, political, et cetera, play in setting the boundaries of what is or isn't cybersecurity. So why does cybersecurity present such lush terrain for discursive manipulation?
1: It's a great question. And we see cybersecurity as one of the defining issues of our times. Right, it really represents um, the dangers and the trepidation that people face when confronted with an increasingly digitalized world. Everything is going online in ways that they don't always understand. Right, so cybersecurity really taps in to a fundamental uh, issue with current contemporary psyche that's faced by people in the Middle East and elsewhere. In terms of why cybersecurity uh, really is ripe for discursive manipulation, I use a specific concept to describe this kind of manipulation. In the book, I refer to the way in which cybersecurity is redefined for various interests as a moral maneuver. Um, And both parts of this term tell you why cybersecurity really matters. So the first part of that term is that these redefinitions are moral. They're value-based. Cybersecurity isn't just a technical issue, but it includes statements and assumptions about what we care about, about what we need to protect, and what should be the object of all our security efforts. Um, And these are moral questions, right? These are value-based decisions that we have to decide. Should we care about state critical infrastructure? Should we see cybersecurity as primarily aimed at individual privacy, um, so these redefinitions of cybersecurity are moral in nature, but they're also maneuvers because they are strategic. Right? Actors are not uh, engaging in this sort of value discussion, to the value contest for their own good. They're not doing it for some normative uh, you know, good of the people. They're doing it in order to advance their own interests. So this is a concept I use to describe the redefinitions of cybersecurity uh, in the book, moral maneuvers leading in different directions. Now, behind this, we say, well, why is cybersecurity an appropriate area for moral maneuvers? And we have two conditions here. One is that uh, cybersecurity is slightly esoteric. right? I started by saying cybersecurity is this fundamental issue of our times, but it's one that people really don't understand at a layman's level. Um, It requires a lot of time and investment in often very complicated uh, technologies. And you have to keep up to date with all the latest updates and changes in the technological systems underlying cybersecurity, internet networks, modern devices, the internet of things, and so on, to really understand what's going on. So people often feel like they don't really have a handle on what's going on. They need experts to interpret cybersecurity for them. The other aspect is that it has high symbolic capital. And this is a sort of you know, theoretical phrase I've drawn from uh, European sociology, uh, which some people like, some people don't. I find it very useful uh, because it tells you that using a term brings certain resources with it. Uh, so if you say, you know, this is an issue of cybersecurity, people say, yes, we understand that's important. We will um, fund you. We will prioritise you. That kind of thing. Others have done this analysis with similar issues, right? So terrorism, for example. Has been seen as having very high symbolic capital. If you justify things in the name of counterterrorism, it gets you a long way. Now we're seeing cybersecurity raise up these threats in states across the world, especially in the Middle East, and we see the symbolic capital of cybersecurity really escalate. This combination, high symbolic capital and expert interpretation, means that moral maneuvers, the sort of way in which experts redefine what they're doing, why they're doing it, often in quite technological detail in relation to specific products or systems really matters and has these broader consequences for how we think about cybersecurity at a regional and global level.
0: I wanted to ask why you chose to focus on the Middle East, but I suppose the answer is some combination of your Arabic language skills and some pre-existing interest in the Middle East at the most basic level. So let me slightly alter the question and instead ask, what the regional lens lended to the analysis that you offer in the book?
1: Yeah, there's always a, um, a interesting relationship between uh, the theoretical reasons for looking at a particular region and the personal reasons. As you say, um, I have a personal background and interest in uh, studying and working with people in the region, and that uh, brought me um, to the subject of the book. But theoretically, it also works as well. And what we see is... Especially in cybersecurity, a lot of the defining moments in cyber conflict, in cybersecurity, and the politics of cybersecurity have occurred in the Middle East. Right, we can go from uh, the famous uh, Stuxnet malware discovered in 2010, relating to the Iranian nuclear program. We can talk about uh, a year later the Arab Spring events, right? These uh, revolutions really um, engendered by. Uh, social media technologies, although that's a controversial topic and we can come back to that. Um, but a lot of these really formative moments in how we understand the relevance of cybersecurity for today's politics and society have connections to the Middle East. So if we want to know what different implications for cybersecurity are at the moment, how, in my terms, moral maneuvers has shaped the landscape of cybersecurity, we have to look towards the Middle East as a region. Um, it's worth saying that of course, uh, this is not a claim of exceptionism, right? This is not saying that the Middle East has issues or conflicts that do not appear everywhere else. So that's a uh, sadly a longstanding uh, trope in studies of the Middle East, and it's one uh, we really should uh, be careful to avoid. Um, in the book, I really focus on transnational relationships and connections between the region and actors out, act outside of it. Right? So, for example, we see companies in the United States and in Europe working very closely with regimes in the Middle East. You see um, NGOs and activists uh, sharing knowledge and practices between countries in the region and outside it as well. So by circumscribing the empirical terrain of this book to the Middle East, I'm not saying that these external actors are irrelevant, far from it. I try and bring them into the analysis wherever possible.
0: So in the book, you look at, four different discursive spaces where the cybersecurity label is marshaled in service of various objective, objectives, excuse me. And the first of those is cybersecurity is a domain of interstate conflict. And you illuminate that through this fascinating story of how the U.S. and its allies use the Shamoon wiper attack, which I'll ask you to explain, to kind of disguise a value-laden interpretation of Iranian behavior in Cyprus. in cyberspace through the language of technical precision. Can you lead
1: us through that really terrific story you tell in the book? Sure. Uh, the story delves uh, some deep into some detail, so we'll see how far we get, and then we can <laughs> surface at the other end. Uh, so, this chapter focusing on cyber conflict starts with uh, Stuxnet. It says, look, this is what many analysts and commentators see as the starting point for. Cyber warfare or cyber conflict, right? That's um, an operation attributed to the US and Israel against the Iranian nuclear program. Now, from my conversations uh, with people, especially in the Gulf states, they said, well, yes, Stuxnet is very important. But from our point of view, we saw Shamoon as this really defining moment in a wake up call for cybersecurity in the region. And the original uh, Shamoon attack was um, against the National Oil Company. Of Saudi Arabia, Saudi Aramco, in the summer of 2012. Um, It wiped data on uh, many thousands of computers uh, across the business networks and, even uh, according to some reports, led to an increase in the price of hard drives worldwide worldwide, as Saudi Aramco sought to buy new computers to replace those it had lost. Um, This uh, wiper was really uh, central to states uh, communicating the urgency of cybersecurity to their populations and to different government agencies. And the way they did this was by redefining the problems with Stuxnet as issues to do with Shamoon instead. Right? And I'll go into a couple of specific concepts. One is the idea of critical infrastructure. Right? So they said what we see is cybersecurity is no longer an issue about maybe fraud or uh, uh, kind of sort of economic uh, identity theft, which I'd covered sort of in the older genesis of uh, cyber security, it's actually a real threat to critical infrastructure. And we can see this from uh, Stuxnet towards Shumun as well. By using the label of critical infrastructure to refer to both an Iranian nuclear program, right, centrifuges, enriching uranium on one hand, and then a national oil company in the Gulf. On the other hand, they've managed to switch the frame from a very sort of politically uh, contested uh, idea about what is okay or not okay to do to interfere with the uranium nuclear program to a hard to contest idea that critical infrastructure, oil and gas and energy should be protected worldwide. Right? So this malleable frame of critical infrastructure was really important in saying, look, forget about Stuxnet, let's think about Shamoon and wipers. The other key uh, switch here is in ideas of destruction. So in Stuxnet, again, we have this idea that there's some kind of physical outcome of a cyber operation. The centrifuges in Natanz uh, were disabled and had to be replaced. Destruction then in the wipers, this is Shamoon and also many later wipers uh, in the Gulf states attributed to Iranian actors later on, is logical. Right. It's the deletion of data, it's um, the sort of wiping of data that you then have to restore or back up and rebuild networks. Um, but these are portrayed especially by um, the companies that are analysing these attacks that are trying to sort of show how important and how threatening they are. This is their business model. They're saying these are destructive attacks in exactly the same way that the physical destruction was um, earlier in Shimu. So this shift from physical to logical destruction again with the shift with this malleable term of critical infrastructure portrays wiper attacks as the most threatening form of cyber conflict in the region.
0: It's fascinating. Um, and I think this is kind of a good moment to talk about the multipolarity of cybersecurity. This is an observation or argument, I suppose, that you make time and time again. And you know, even in the most superficially kind of clear-cut cases of two party disputes, um, there's always this um, panoply of self-interested parties who kind of are drawn to the discursive space with various objectives to serve. Um, That is, I guess, a very vague way to refer to various private interested parties who had an interest in kind of magnifying the uh, threat of the Shamoon wiper attack. Um, So can you either talk about the specifics of that, but just kind of more broadly, Um, You know, when we're thinking about and analyzing different um, cybersecurity moments, incidents, attacks, um, you know, what are the different parties that we should have our antennas out for um, as we kind of analyze
1: these these cases? Sure. So I would definitely talk about the specifics of um, these companies in the in the portrayal of Iranian cyber activity because it's crucial right we can see cyber conflict as sort of an interstate issue but actually the way in which our understanding of cyber conflict is shaped by these companies is uh, very important and I'll address this in two ways one right one is um, let's think about the landscape of cybersecurity in the Gulf states for many companies this is uh, what might be termed rich pickings Um, They see there's a lot of uh, investment going on in cybersecurity, there's maybe not that much uh, knowledge, um, and there's a real desire to improve cybersecurity and almost to start with unlimited budgets to do so. So many companies, both in the narrow specialized cybersecurity industry, threat intelligence, specific cybersecurity solutions, but also more widely across defense and IT industries are trying to sell cybersecurity. To what they see as um, highly lucrative clients. And this competition leads them to really try and portray their own solutions, their own approaches as best at uh, defending against a threat, quite understandably. And so, what I do in the chapter is look at the evolution in the cybersecurity uh, economy in the Gulf states, say, well, we have this longstanding defense industry with big contracts for. Fighters and arms sales. And on the other hand, we have this sort of ups, upstart cybersecurity industry trying to work its way into the Gulf states. And this uh, relationship, this competition between them, is crucial to understand why you have uh, this increased threat portrayal to clients in the Gulf. The other aspect of uh, the private companies is actually back in the US, right? So here, of course, um, the kinds of threat you have from Iran. Are really important to ongoing uh, political uh, debates and um, often quite uh, stark political polarization on what the US should do regarding Iran. Right, what stance should it take? This is building up to the JCPOA, the nuclear um, deal, and it's highly divisive in the Iranian political, in the sorry, US political arena. And you have companies saying, "Well, what we see from Iran is a real asymmetric threat." Right, they're hitting back at us with cyber means. This is what they might do. Uh, in the context of a deal, in what, what it might do in the context of a strike. And this is why we should be wary of Iran. We should take um, the Iranian cyber threat seriously. Now, there's a, there's some truth to this, right? So I don't want to say, you know, the uh, incidents attributed to Iran weren't correctly attributed, but there is also exaggeration. And in this case, I pinpoint some instances of where companies went, not only sort of beyond what I would say is a, Accurate representation of the threat. They said, you know, here's how Iran is essentially um, uh, targeting forms of critical infrastructure across the world, right? And they'd use some dodgy methodology to do that. And there were quite a few dodgy reports in this period that came out. But this was also resisted by others in the industry, right? Again, what seems to be a simple story gets more complicated when you delve into the detail. So actually, other cybersecurity experts, other threat intelligence companies working on Iran pushed back, said this is too much. Right? So this, this kind of work doesn't represent our industry well. It doesn't uh, represent the threat. And it's too, too exaggerating. And so what you have here is not only moral maneuvers, right? Companies saying, well, this is where we're redefining what cybersecurity means. We're doing it for our own, in this case, economic purpose. But you have limits to how far these morominiums can take place. They can't just um, sort of essentially make things up as they go along, right? The rest of the community, the rest of the um, uh, threat intelligence cybersecurity uh, industry pushes back and says, no, there are certain uh, boundaries on what we will expect, ex- on what we'll accept in terms of you uh, redefining cybersecurity. So that's really fascinating to me, not just from a uh, perspective of including a variety of actors that often don't get uh, a lot of attention in uh, these kind of analyses, but also in really highlighting the limits of where this discursive manipulation can take place.
0: And very quickly, I can't remember if you got to this in the book, but did you think about, you know, for many of these actors, there's a clear financial stake in exaggerating the, the threat, but I think to a certain extent, there are some well-intentioned um, you know, analysts producing reports that may ultimately be, be inaccurate. But did do you kind of think about that b- balance between, you know, deliberate strategies to exaggerate, you know, a threat versus just kind of what might simply be, I guess, Western bias to a country that, you know, many people looking at this talk probably lo- know little about the political circumstances in Iran, probably. I think you get the point. I'll leave it there.
1: <laughs> yeah, of course. And so while at the you, the organizational level, you can see a clear rationale, right? You can see a strategic um, reason for uh, really focusing on Iran when you're trying to sell uh, cybersecurity solutions in the Gulf states. But at an individual level, you're exactly right. You know, these are people who want to protect networks, right? Their interest is in delving into networks, finding threats, tying the pieces together, and then attributing it to a state, right? And trying to work out how we can better protect everyone based on this. So. Uh, What you then have is this uh, default assumption that once you have Iran um, being the source of wiping attacks, of um, uh, destructive attacks in the Gulf, that this then persists into the threat intelligence community later on. So you have very good analysts saying, look... we're not really sure what this means. right? The picture is complex here. Uh, This particular malware might be used for espionage. It does have a module that could be used for um, ransomware or encrypting data, or it could be used for wiping data as well. We're not really sure. But we have to err on the side of caution. We have to see if it's from Iran, it's probably going to be wiping, and that's the kind of threat we have to look at. So when the uh, data isn't clear, when the detailed technical analysis doesn't give you all the answers, which, to be honest, it very rarely does. Uh, you have um, this broader approach to Iranian cyber threat really feeding in, even to those analysts that are doing this you know, as honestly and uh, as well as they can.
0: The second of the four forms of cybersecurity that you look at in the book is cybersecurity as the protection of human, human rights. And here, you're able to paint this uh, more colorful picture of kind of the normative and discursive jousting that happens, I think, in part because in the prior example, there's very few people outside Iran who are willing to come to their defense. So can we start um, by having you explain the strategies that activist organizations, if it's fair to label it as such, like Citizen Lab, um, deploy in order to push a particular human
1: rights interpretation of cybersecurity into the mainstream? Sure. So uh, the starting point for this chapter is to see that cybersecurity as a human rights issue, as a um, question of uh, protecting individual rights, is starkly different to that of cyber conflict. Right? And how did we get there? And one of the answers here is a really longer term idea of human security as an alternative to national and international security that's got a long genesis in politics and thinking about international relations. Now, that was picked up by several organizations, Citizen Lab being among them, uh, especially around the time of the Arab Spring, to say, look, we can understand human security as a digital issue, not just as a sort of personal issue as well. We have to think about human security online as well as offline. The consequences of this is that cybersecurity then is normatively seen as a Uh, human or individual issue, right? This is a normative reason they say we should uh, reorient our discussions of cybersecurity towards human security. And there's no secret of this, right? These are um, NGOs. They're seeking to um, uh, promote human rights in international affairs. And so they have a clear normative aim behind that. Um, But I go beyond this, right? And one of the um, more interesting stories in this chapter is what happens once you have the Arab Spring, you have the revealing of targeted surveillance technologies by journalists and activist organizations, and the subsequent question of what do we do about it? There, this sort of normative approach to cybersecurity as a human rights issue then becomes much more strategic, because you have pushback from a large swathe of the cybersecurity industry saying, we can't really regulate these controls, especially through export regulation, because we'd have a lot of um, negative impact on legitimate cybersecurity activity, penetration testing, sharing um, of malware samples across a multinational company within different jurisdictions and so on. And in response to this, the um, human rights NGOs, especially Citizen Lab, um, use... Cybersecurity as their response. They say, look, you know, yes, you're you're coming back to us and saying we can't do export control of surveillance software because of cybersecurity issues. Well, we're telling you in response that actually targeted surveillance is a cybersecurity threat, right? And human rights export controls are a way to improve cybersecurity. So rather than have a frame of saying, well, we have human rights versus cybersecurity. And we have a trade-off between the two. They move the the terrain of debate. They say, this is a cybersecurity issue in total. We have to just think of different kinds of cybersecurity. Are you you prioritizing the cybersecurity of organizations over the cybersecurity of individuals? And that is a really strategic move within these export control debates designed to try and get some kind of regulation on targeted surveillance.
0: Can you talk about the way that companies like Hacking Team, FinFisher, and NSO Group Seek to combat the uh, reports that Citizen Lab and other activist groups produce
1: and kind of turn the human rights narrative back against them? Sure. So, you know, again, we're thinking about this in the frame of moral maneuvers, right? We had one maneuver where, you know, this is a reinterpretation of cybersecurity as a human rights issue by Citizen Lab and others. There's real pushback here. And what happens uh, is that. Uh, these companies see regulation coming, right? They see a a more difficult economic environment and they try and get involved in the debate, right? They release public statements. um, They have uh, PR uh, campaigns and engage lobbyists and this kind of thing. Uh, Of course, uh, NSO Group has been uh, doing that a lot uh, very recently, but it's not the first time this has happened. And actually, if you look at the discursive strategies of NSO Group over the last couple of years, they're not original right they're not the they're not new they were have been tried earlier by hacking team especially and other companies and so what are these strategies right they try and um respond to this accusation that they are a cybersecurity threat well first of all they say it's nothing to do with us right we're merely technology providers we're not responsible for whatever um governments do with our software um and so they say well there's a claim of distance here right we provide the technology we can't know what our customers do with it That's brought into question. It doesn't last very long, um, often because uh, the software requires constant uh, updates. It requires troubleshooting. Customers often don't really know how to uh, use it, especially if you look in these leaked documents. There's a lot of questions being like, well, um, for this target, well, it didn't really work. Can you help me update it? Can you help me try again? And so these companies are definitely involved, right? They're definitely um, working very closely uh, with their clients, um, and they 're providing a very bespoke service, so this idea that the of distance doesn 't really fly, so instead they say, well, you know on one hand, we have to justify it. you know actually, the software is really mainly used for national security purposes it 's criminals and terrorists that we 're helping governments protect their citizens from it 's not all these human rights issues that you 're raising right and in part, this is really difficult to judge uh, because we don't have access to the main um, uh, sort of totality of uh, targets of this spyware. So whether you know it's mainly criminals or terrorists or it's mainly journalists and dissidents is impossible for a public sort of data observatory to say. Um, but what you can say is that whatever these complaint, um, claims of uh, justified targeting of criminals and terrorists, there are definitely many cases of uh, targeting where it is not a criminal or terrorist in a Standard definition, right? They are journalists. They are dissidents. They are activists. They are people who are um, problematic to the regime, rather than uh, violent threats to safety and um, society. And so that also doesn't fly, right? Especially in the Middle East and around the Arab Spring. There's plenty of instances. One being uh, Ahmed Mansour, the million-dollar dissident, as as Citizen Lab uh, call him, uh, where these people are clearly not uh, uh, terrorists to the way that um, many. Western observers would understand it. And so the last thing that um, these companies do is really uh, try and say, okay, fine, so we do know our software is used, we do try and make it being used for uh, only countering terrorism or criminality, but governments may misuse our software. We recognise this and we have structures in place uh, to prevent this happening. And so here is possibly the most interesting development when you have NSO Group, but before them, a uh, hacking team doing the same thing, we review our sales very carefully. We include human rights conditions in our contracts. And if there are complaints or instances of misuse, we actually sometimes say we won't sell to that um, customer or we will pause our relationship with that customer. And this is um, you know, trying to take the moral high ground, right? They're not... You know, this is a far cry from their initial response where they're saying, well we're not involved in this debate, right? Don't regulate us because it's not relevant, right? We're merely providers. Instead, they're saying, no, we are definitely involved, but we are doing this ethically, right? We are taking moral stance. We can draw this line between legitimate and um, illegitimate uses of our software. Uh, Again, when you look into the detail, as far as you can read um, from continued reports, especially those over the last year or so, this again does not. Uh, fly in the face of the evidence that we can see available. right? You do have some instances where hacking team get very concerned about certain customers. They do pause them occasionally, but often that's for sort of reputational reasons. They say, oh, this looks very bad for us, but we'll come back to them once it dies down. Um, and for NSO Group, there's very well-publicized instances worldwide of them continuing uh, to sell uh, over the last year or so you know, in Mexico and the UK. And uh, elsewhere, not just uh, in the Middle East, uh, so you see a ratcheting up of discursive strategies—from lack of involvement to justified use to, you know, claims of ethical consideration—that bit by bit are all countered by the available evidence. Right? So they are strategic uh, efforts to, you know, try and reorient the moral ground of cybersecurity back in their favour, but they're ones that don't quite work.
0: The third form of cybersecurity that you discuss in the book is cybersecurity as control of a nation's sovereign information environment. This is something that gets plenty of coverage when it comes to China, but a little bit less so in the Middle East. So to start, can you talk about how Middle Eastern states, you know, which lack kind of the bureaucratic heft and perhaps confidence of a place like Beijing, design, implement
1: and enforce systems systems of information control? Sure, and you know, this is worth putting in the context of uh, one of the major theoretical frames of the book, right? Which is this idea of digital authoritarianism, right? It comes back, it comes back in different chapters, but this chapter on information controls is really where the book speaks to these um, global studies about how authoritarianism, often thought to be very uh, difficult to achieve in a digitally connected age when citizens could have access to all kinds of information is actually quite resilient. It's able to adapt and really introduce new practices of information control. And the chapter is split in two. The first um, half looks at uh, the kinds of regulations and legal uh, efforts governments go to to uh, use cybersecurity as a method of information control. They enact cybercrime laws, and they uh, introduce uh, new cybersecurity centers, often uh, moving it bureaucratically from uh, telecoms regulators and um, telecoms ministries towards the more uh, powerful national security actors of the state, towards ministries of interior and intelligence agencies. Right? This combined bureaucratic move plus a uh, increased legal um, regime of cybercrime with a very uh, broad definitions of what counts as a cybercrime really enables a vast range of information controls. Right. So uh, this is something that uh, starts even before the Arab Spring, but definitely afterwards you see it cascade throughout the Gulf states and then beyond in the Middle East. Now, interestingly, you know, as you said, uh, they don't have, they don't quite have the heft of China, right? They're not um, a global superpower in this sense. So what you actually see is much more of a negotiation with international ideas about what cybercrime is and should be in these laws. Right? So there are international conventions on cybercrime. Uh, some of them, for example, the Budapest Convention, have been around for a while. And this is a subject of big international uh, division over uh, how should the internet be governed more generally. Right, um, But in this period after the Arab Spring, these uh, countries are saying, well, we do want to be seen as enacting cybercrime laws that cohere with international ideas of what cybercrime should um, should be. So they draw on the Budapest Convention, they engage in discussions with their international interlocutors in Europe and elsewhere, but then they include broader uh, definitions and add clauses into the cybercrime laws. So they say, we agree with the Budapest stuff, but we have more stuff as well. Um... Uh, clauses criminalizing comments that uh, impede national unity or social cohesion or any of the ruling family, for example. So these kinds of clauses extend rather than directly contradict uh, the international uh, norms on cybercrime uh, that you see. The uh, second part of the chapter says, well, okay, fine, we have this uh, legislative framework. Of course, there's terrorism, there's media legislation, and cybersecurity is one part of this legislative framework. How is that implemented in practice? And this is where really studies of uh, digital and resilient authoritarianism haven't been, this, haven't been into this space before. So we're trying to really tread new ground here and say, forget you know, the states, the state architecture is there for a while, but we also need to look at these semi-state and non-state actors that are implementing surveillance controls. Right Some of these are telecoms ministries, right They're um, obligated to enable national security agency access to large-scale telecoms networks, and then they have specialized providers uh, implementing filtering, analysis and censorship software at a national scale. Some of the software uh, starts at a commercial level and then is repurposed uh, nationally, um, and others is developed specifically for uh, these national monitoring. Kind of capabilities. And here again, we have a really fascinating uh, tussle, right, between different actors with different economic and moral aims in this sphere. So sometimes, and I trace one case uh, in the book, you have um, surveillance providers going into a, a tele- you know, telecoms regulator saying we do have to um, implement this uh, monitoring solution, but being uncomfortable with the way in which they're asked to implement it, right? The extent to which they need uh, really massive search um, facilities that enable the state, this is a goal state, um, to really use it for um, any kind of uh, uh, data analysis they want to. And so they, rather than complaining in sort of the way I discuss in the uh, targeted surveillance chapter, right, this doesn't go into a, a normative framework, it doesn't go into export control and sort of ethical Uh, Debates between uh, activists and um, NSO group kind of suppliers. Instead, they make quiet little changes to the technology itself, right? They implement sort of a harder to use surveillance system than the one that is originally asked for, right? They say they did this partly for moral reasons. They might have also done it um, for, for some economic reasons as well, right? So there's all this stuff going on at the micro level of these surveillance providers in the Gulf states and elsewhere, that is some sometimes resistance, sometimes it's facilitation, but it's really consequential for the broader understanding of information controls. Right, Once states decide to implement information controls, how it's done, who does it, and why are really important questions that aren't answered so far. They have really important um, consequences, not just for the Middle East, but for understanding authoritarianism globally.
0: Inferentially, it seems like this chapter was... The most unique methodologically, you know, how did you learn the things you learned and that amazing story that you just shared with us, um, which was kind of amazing to read in the book. So let's step outside the substance for a moment. Can you talk about um, the research you did for the book in general, but specifically for this chapter, how you were able to um, learn a lot of the information um, that you shared about the way kind of at the substate level or with the private actors, um, some of these agreements uh, were made um, within the Middle East.
1: Sure, so I I rely on a range of sources um, in the book. Um, The uh, sort of underpinning of the book is really the fieldwork I spent um, for my doctoral dissertation in 2016, 2017, and afterwards uh, in the Gulf States and in Egypt, talking to uh, people involved in the field of cybersecurity. Um, now, as we know, after half an hour of conversation, that's a pretty uh, loose term that can be defined in lots of different ways. So you end up meeting a lot of different people um, who have very interesting uh, backgrounds and stories. You know, some of them working in critical infrastructure, some of them working for state intelligence agencies, some of them working for surveillance providers, and so on. Um, I spent a lot of time at cybersecurity conferences. I, you know, talk to people from these conferences and beyond, um, and people, you know. Uh, had different reactions to me, right? So I'm, um, you know, I went in as an academic, saying I'm uh, at the time I was with the University of Oxford, saying I'm researching cybersecurity at Oxford. Some people say, "Yes, yeah, great, you know, come and talk." Um, other people thought I was just selling something, right? So it's interesting, you know, you you have you have this white guy turn up uh, who speaks with a British accent, and they're like, "Okay, what are you so, what are you trying to sell me?" Um, and <laughs> like, "No, no, no it's, it's not that way." Um, so often you get you get into uh, conversational spaces that I never expected um, to be in. And for me, that was uh, important for, to represent that in the book, to bring that uh, out in the book, because as you say, it's something that doesn't really uh, get captured elsewhere. But it's also a risk for many of my uh, interlocutors. You know, They're talking about stuff that uh, is not only uh, maybe of unclear legal status, um, but for themselves, it could have great personal consequences as well. Um, so for both conferences and interviews, I do anonymize in the book, um be, because of these risks. Um, so that's really where the main source comes from. Um, you know, I try and supplement this where possible. Often, uh, if you do have uh, the profile I have, you, you don't get invited into every conversation. So you do have to look around. You have to look at leaked documents. You have to rely on the excellent work of others. So Citizen Lab, we've mentioned already. But there are many people investing in this space, many more now than when I was writing the book, which is a real pleasure to see. Um, how it's uh, grown over the last few years, and you, know, you have to rely on those uh, investigative journalists and things as well. Um, so there's a variety of um, sources. And for me, there's also an important point here about how we treat our sources uh, in cybersecurity research in political science. But in different parts of the book, I treat these sources as discourse and data, right? Sometimes I'm looking at um, what interviewees are saying and um, what reports are, how reports are written, as you know, discursive manipulation in practice, right? How are they defining concepts? How are they trying to stretch um, uh, concepts? Uh, redefine things and go on. Otherwise, In other places, I'm looking at them as data, right? Evidence that this happened. We have to be able to do both um, as analysts of uh, cybersecurity, but we have to be really clear about when we're doing one and not the other because that's methodologically very problematic as soon as you start confusing the two. Um, so for me, that's just a point for all the other uh, political scientists out there doing this kind of cybersecurity research, really um, think, thinking carefully about what's going on in your sources and you know how you're using them as much as uh, how accurate they are.
0: Before we move on to the fourth and final um, conceptual space that is cybersecurity, I wanted to ask um, again about information control. And one of the... I'll call it an argument, but it's not particularly central to the story of the book. But one of the arguments you make is that the rhetorical kind of sleight of hand involved in uh, replacing terms like censorship with other terms, new terms like cybersecurity, is that it helps states to legitimize otherwise controversial practices. Um, how transparent or effective is that within many of these states? I mean, it strikes me from the outside that when you you know you often reading about these kind of you know transparently, um, you know egregious new cybercrime laws that that emerge from X Y Z state. So is this something that the publics at least in these states at least initially interpreted as genuine and kind of in their interest as part of those states?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, right? So um, it does matter, right? In the the uh, replacement of more controversial terms um, with cybersecurity still has an effect on publics in these states, right? I, th- I think there's a danger that because the political environment is so different in the Gulf states to maybe the U.S. Um, political scene, that the assumption that citizens there are sort of content with uh, pervasive surveillance and that you know that's just a sort of they're resigned to it, right? That's um, a quid pro quo of um, the kind of environment they're in. That's really not true, right? There is a really live um, political debate going on in all the Gulf states, you know, from Saudi Arabia to Amman to the UAE, on um, privacy, on the extent to which uh, people can be monitored, should be monitored. Um, obviously, it goes on in the context of an authoritarian uh, framework, legislatively, so there's a lot more permissions for um, the government to intervene in digital communications than there would be for example in the us but that's not to say that debate doesn't take place right um and so moving uh these kinds of technologies towards a cybersecurity framework really adds to their justification and takes them outside of this uh controversial zone um so yes the the kind of questions on monitoring and privacy are different in the gulf um but they're still there right and this uh Sort of the function of cybersecurity as uh, legitimizing, as as smoothing over uh, political controversies still works, even in this different uh, context. Now, the other thing to say is that while it's partly directed at publics, it's also directed at more specific individuals, especially those experts who are involved in uh, the implementation, right? And this is where you see some really strange stories of uh, uh, companies and agencies. Required to implement surveillance architectures in the Gulf, reaching out uh, to people often with you know uh, human rights backgrounds, you know uh, hackers uh, who are well known for certain um, uh, using certain tools, and saying, "Can you help us?" Right, and there you have a weird discussion where they say, "Well, n- initially, no. This seems like..." The- Moray, the thing I really don't want to do. And they say, well, actually, right, this is really helping security, right? If you helped us, you'd be helping us uh, implement cybersecurity nationally across our networks. Right? So this movement towards the justification of information controls through cybersecurity doesn't just matter for publics, it matters for those involved as well. It's a way to try and uh, bring people in who have the required expertise in the topic.
0: Great. So we're going to move to the final um, definition of cybersecurity you explore in the book, which is cybersecurity is a problem of foreign interference. Um, this is one of the kind of less obvious applications of that label. And I'm curious, how much of that discursive evolution is driven by
1: the 2016 US election? It's a great question. So the for, for, the, um, for context, this chapter uh, really looks at where the limits of uh redefining cybersecurity are, right? So uh globally the US uh, 2016 election is really fundamental in seeing foreign interference rise up uh the um the uh priorities of cybersecurity analysts. Uh, previous um previously you have uh, disinformation being something that well maybe it mainly happens in Uh, Authoritarian regimes—it's something that this idea of information uh, control is something that we don't need to worry about. Uh, And even the U.S. and European states tried in UN treaties to try and keep this um, off the table. After 2016, the whole thing flips, right? So you have disinformation being the number one priority, right? Election interference, foreign interference in democratic processes through both hacking, leaking, and targeted propaganda, social media influence—the whole gamut of Um, techniques, being really at the top of the agenda. So globally, this is something that uh, the 2016 election is a turning point. However, there's always a however, uh, in the Gulf states, that's not the same turning point, right? For them, the turning point is a 2017 Gulf crisis. When you have Qatar being uh, uh, blockaded or ostracized by the other, um, the cortex states, Uh, most of the other GCC states, um, plus uh, Egypt, and you have this information war going on about who was in the right. right? The accusation is that Qatar was sponsoring terrorism. Um, The Qatari accusation is that uh, the other states are unhappy with its independence and its media freedoms, and they want to uh, close them down. Because these states are so... Embedded internationally with um, partners in Europe and the US, and they have a lot of long-standing diplomatic relationships there. You know, this becomes an argument that's played out on the global scale, right? The um, Gulf crisis has effects um, uh, from uh, politics in Europe to uh, sports uh, broadcasting uh, to uh, media um, and individual journalists having their careers changed, right? So it has these. Different knock on effects in lots of different areas um, uh, globally. And so, foreign interference after 2017 in the Gulf is then something that is at the top of people's agendas. Um, yes, 2016 is important, but for the Gulf, it's 2017. And in the chapter, I trace uh, not only the start of the 2015, 2017 crisis, which um, was, by all accounts, uh, due to a um, hack and uh, I guess, fabricated information, uh, uh, linking the Emir of uh, Qatar to terrorism in Iran, uh, and then later on, what becomes an increasingly vitriolic social media landscape on both sides, right? national increasingly nationalistic, increasingly polarized, increasingly aggressive, uh, sometimes driven uh, by bots, by artificial accounts, but also driven by uh, individuals, key influencers who are working you know, to advance the narrative of each state. Now, in the chapter, I draw on the work of lots of other people who have done great work in examining the informational information contests around uh, the Gulf crisis and the Middle East more broadly. And my particular spin on it is, well, to what extent are these really cybersecurity issues, right? So far, I've been tracing the moral maneuvers around cybersecurity in the different uh, frameworks in the previous chapters, and so I have a take on it, saying, "Well, to what extent can we really think about disinformation, foreign interference as a cybersecurity issue?" Um, now, of course, based on the framework I use, this is not a uh, objective question. It's one saying, "Well, to, <laughs> whose interests are at stake here? Right? Who wants to? Who matters? Right? Who uh, benefits uh, from having foreign interference as a cybersecurity issue?" I look uh, from the social media takedowns right the big social media companies who increasingly uh, inc- uh include um uh disinformation as one of their main threats uh copying a lot of the language and practices of cybersecurity um investigations uh from earlier years um i also look at uh pr companies uh law firms who br- who bring their own spin and say well actually sometimes While the symbolic capital of cybersecurity can be useful, right? It can help us to mobilize against foreign interference. Actually, we don't always want to use it. Um, And so specifically in uh, some of these uh, sports broadcasting issues that I go into in the second part of the chapter, they actually choose to go away from describing everything as a cybersecurity issue. For me, that's fascinating, right? Because it again shows a different kind of limit to say, well, if we're reinterpreting cybersecurity for all our interests, Actually, there comes a point at which you say, no, um, it actually doesn't benefit us to, and get, to portray this as a cybersecurity issue. Um, and it's only there that we really get to um, understanding sort of the limits of cybersecurity as uh, related to foreign interference in the Middle East.
0: You've anticipated some of the follow-up questions I wanted to ask regarding that question. So I'll throw you a little bit of a curveball. Um a quiet theme of the chapter that I enjoyed of reading and thinking about was the unintentional convergence that you identify between democratic and non-democratic countries when it comes to um, foreign interference, foreign interference, which precipitates kind of greater sensitivity around um, information, national information control. Um, I'm curious whether you've had the opportunity to kind of ponder that insight further um, and You know, for example, in a country like Iran, is there some sense that um, they welcome this greater information protectionism in the West because they believe, hope, that it might lead to kind of greater self-awareness on democratic information
1: practices abroad? Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's really a fascinating issue uh, because uh, while some... Political scientists, especially, have actually used the language of convergence. Right? They've said we do see um, authoritarian practices spreading worldwide, so we need to think about authoritarian practices rather than black-and-white authoritarian states and uh, non-authoritarian um, democratic states. Um, actually, uh, this is still a live issue, and you can still distinguish um, differences between approaches to foreign interference in more democratic and uh, more authoritarian uh, contexts. For example, um, when you have uh, the European Union, more recently, this goes beyond the subject the, the subject of the chapter, um, they've been thinking a lot about disinformation um, at individual state levels, but also um, looking at uh, what the EU can do as a whole against disinformation, uh, especially focusing on foreign interference, um, using some of the cases that we've mentioned now there the overriding question is to what extent does this is this compatible with the fundamental rights and freedoms that are enshrined in many EU states and at the EU uh, level uh, so recognizing the freedom of speech recognizing uh, the importance of media to democracy of media freedom to electoral context is a starting point for then thinking about what controls can we uh enact on foreign interference through disinformation in the middle east the conversation starts the other way around right so rather than starting with the rights and freedoms you start with the threat and then there becomes pressure from a variety of different uh, angles on how far that threat necessitates really really strict information controls um the coda to this uh, answer is really actually in international negotiations right so you have a new cybercrime treaty being negotiated at the moment, right? You have um, uh, US resistance and like-minded states resistance to a Russian proposal saying, well, we need to have this uh, new treaty that's pretty broad and often vague in its um, application. And in response, you say, well, actually, it's much more difficult for these states to make that argument, given that they're really concerned about information control, and foreign interference in their own uh, national spaces, right? And they've been able to define national spaces in a way that 20 years ago, everyone was very worried about saying that you could even have a national space on the internet, right? That's no longer part of the conversation. So this conceptually has shifted dramatically, especially in international negotiations, to really uh, chip away at the ground for Um, promoting an open free internet that was used over the last few decades. So overall, I really see that as problematic in terms of the kinds of justifications that are available to states now because of the priority of foreign interference. Whether we can recover that space, whether we can reclaim that space while still um, dealing with foreign interference as a major threat is something that remains to be seen.
0: Great. I'd like to end with some forecasting. So you speculate that the malleability of cybersecurity may be its downfall in the sense that as other conceptual categories emerge, they may supplant cybersecurity. This is something you were just talking about a few moments ago. On the other hand, um, one would suspect that cybersecurity increases in kind of at least symbolic importance um, because the world is going to continue to digitize and become more digital. Um, so, do you expect the cybersecurity discourse? If you had to bet here, I don't know if you're betting man, but I'm gonna make you become one. Um, to continue metastasizing? And if not, which of the four categories here do you expect to be kind of the most stable over time? I guess I'm saying to go back to the betting analogy, if you had to pick a horse,
1: <laughs> which horse would you pick? <laughs> yeah, I think, so this is a really interesting one for me because we have to separate the issues that I um, deal with in a book and their description, their portrayal of cybersecurity issues, right? What I say is that these issues are not going away. That's evidently clear, right? The human rights issues around privacy, uh, state manipulation and uh, intrusion into the affairs of other states, information controls, foreign interference, this is all going to continue happening and it's going to increase the more um, digitalized our societies become. Uh, But whether this is best understood as cybersecurity or whether it, you know, uh, in a different framing, best serves certain actors' interests to... um, conduct moral manoeuvres that define these kinds of issues of cybersecurity is much more of an open question. Uh, A lot of my uh, friends and colleagues in the actual uh, cybersecurity industry, in quotation marks, get very uncomfortable when we talk about cybersecurity. It's the the basic uh, language of political scientists and um, journalists, but they say, oh no, it's actually information security. Actually, you know, cybersecurity is a really uncomfortable Um, lumping together of lots of different issues, right? And obviously in the book, I agree with them when I say, well, Mm -hmm. why are they all lumped together? Um, But this is going to continue to happen, right? When we think about uh, an entirely digitalized society where we're doing almost all of our interactions online, almost everything has some kind of uh, online component, actually cybersecurity almost becomes meaningless, right? It just is security. Uh, And so this integration, this sort of normalization of cybersecurity as just an aspect of security more broadly means that these different uh, challenges and disputes on you know, human security, on national information controls really take their own form. And I see that happening. I can see that happening in the future, that actually the utility of cybersecurity as an umbrella concept is maybe limited to this specific moment over the last decade or two decades when it really helped to pinpoint the digital aspects of society and compare them to the offline ones, right? Maybe in the future, we, we can put the metaphors aside for now, uh, but maybe that makes less sense in the future. Um, and finally, uh, on your point as to uh, which horse I would back, if my chapters were horses, um, then I think for me, it is uh, the... Uh, it's the information controls chapter um the discussion about targeted surveillance is a little bit more specific right it's fascinating in its uh, richness um in its um sort of malleability right the the extent to which the the barefaced uh, alterations from not being involved to being uh, ethically you know ethical champions of surveillance is, is by these targeted surveillance companies is fascinating, but is a much more specific discussion um, than this broader question of to what extent should um, states, regimes uh, engage in curtailing the boundaries of freedom of information, engage in uh, the limits to which citizens can access information, and can um, talk to each other, communicate online. That is something that is not going away, and if uh, it, uh, anything is a cybersecurity issue, that should be one.
0: All right, Dr. Shires, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I guess last question, the book is very new. It is officially out in bookstores, correct? Uh, it is coming out this month. So. It's coming out this month. Is there a specific date? Uh, I think the 16th of December. So. Okay, so Christmas present for, for everyone. <laughs> Perfect.
1: <laughs> okay. If you're spending Christmas at home, then there's plenty of reading material. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much, Dr. Shires. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.